Uh, before we jump into uh, today's message, I do have the results from a congregational meeting this morning. As already announced, uh, Claire Gardner was elected as trustee, 70 yes, zero no, two abstentions. Kirk Mottman was nominated or uh, elected as deacon with 76 yes, two no, three abstentions. Uh, Tom was elected 77 yes, one no, three abstentions. Uh, John was elected 78 yes, one no, two abstentions. And Mike was elected 78 yes, one no, two abstentions. Um, so overwhelming. Uh, there were a few, uh, very small number of no votes. And so I just want to encourage you, if you were one of those people uh, that voted no, go and talk to that person. I'm told it wasn't all the same person. Uh, so uh, we didn't have somebody that just didn't like everybody. Um, but often there is a good and valid reason. And it may be one that they haven't thought of or considered. And so I just want to encourage you to talk to them and say, I was one of those people and here's my concern. And uh, that could be very helpful to them. So obviously we don't, there were no names. We don't know who they are. It's completely up to you. Uh, but I would encourage you to do that. Okay, let's turn to our scripture for today. You have a uh, sermon outline that says, Pray for America. So we are in our series on the most misused and misunderstood verses of the Bible. And uh, this is an interesting one. You're getting over today. There's no blanks in the bulletins, so but you should still listen. I know some people only listen for that word to put in that blank, you know, but they, uh, it was late, you know. I was like running out of creativity. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive uh, right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again this morning to your word to learn about your ways. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand this teaching. It's hard to understand. It's hard to obey. It's hard to listen to your word. We thank you for it. And so we pray that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to bow our hearts to its authority. And we pray as well, O oh Lord, that we would become people who seek God's face, Show us how, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Thursday was the National Take a Verse Out of Context Day of Prayer. Um, so Thursday, the first Thursday in May is designated every year as the National Day of Prayer. America has observed uh, this day since President Truman signed that designation into law in 1952. So last Thursday, hopefully millions, probably thousands of American Christians gathered together or individually paused to pray for America. And that's good. We're admonished uh, to pray by the Apostle Paul. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. He also wrote to Timothy about the specific content of our prayers in 1 Timothy 2, as we read in our responsive reading uh, this morning. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, 
and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we see that praying for kings and all who are in high positions is good and pleasing in the sight of God. So uh, that means we should be regularly praying for our leaders. And you probably don't even have to turn on the news to figure out why. But this is where so many Christians, including pastors and Christian leaders, veer off the scripturally prescribed path of how to pray for our leaders. They rip off one particular verse out of context and then wrongly apply it to America. We wield it as a promise and fuse it with perceived power and expect revival to come from it. And you know the verse. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14, probably the most quoted Old Testament verse when this day rolls around. But you say, you know, we read that verse, it makes us feel inspired and empowered and hopeful, and that's okay, right? Well, to quote my good friend Frank Wong, um, no. <laughs> the pulpit is a dangerous thing. Well, that's because faith is based on truth, not feelings. And scripture conveys truth. And if you get the meaning wrong, then those feelings you get may leave you wondering when are those promised results coming. And to get the meaning wrong means to get the truth wrong. And that's essentially what happens with this um, National Day of Prayer verse. If you think about it, we've been praying... For over 60 years on this day for God to heal our land and it doesn't seem to be working are not enough of us praying are we not sincere enough God's not healing our land in fact things seem to be getting worse so we could ask what's the deal could it be that we've got it wrong well yes yes it could Let's read our text. We're going to read the full context, really focusing on verse 14. But we're going to read the full context. You can see sort of what it's talking about. Second Chronicles chapter 7, start, excuse me, starting at verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, 
and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Well, hopefully by seeing the whole thing, you can already see some of the problems in taking one verse out. Now this verse is riveted with great spiritual truth. Need for humility, prayer, pursuit of God, repentance. Furthermore, it promises God's listening ear and forgiveness and healing. On the surface, it seems to be an ideal verse to claim for believers who long to see uh, righteousness and truth and blessing fall upon their country. But is it a legitimate use? First rule of biblical interpretation is the rule of context. Sorry. The rule of context. And that rule is context rules. Or as I've said uh, many times, context is king. So here then are some questions to ask about this verse that can only be answered by knowing its context. We're going to look at the background first, so I'm going to lay out the context, and then we're going to, instead of going verse by verse as we normally do, uh, I'm going to ask some questions of the text. So let's start by looking at the historical setting. We are in ancient Israel in Second Chronicles. David has gone, the kingdom hasn't. And now we're invited on this roller coaster ride through First and Second Chronicles, tracing the ups and downs of this kingdom and its people over four centuries. First Chronicles focuses on David, but then there's life after David. In fact, David's reign is largely seen as one of preparation for Solomon's. And finally, the temple is to be built as a peaceful kingdom flourishes. Now, the Bible is filled with ancient history. To be sure, it's much more than that. It's a revelation of God to us. Its primary concern is about revealing God and his plan of salvation. But even as revelation, the Bible's stories uh, and settings are historical in nature. To interpret scripture correctly, it's not only important to consider the literary context, but to consider the historical context. Much of what took place happened in ancient civilizations where languages, lifestyles, uh, governments, cultural values varied from age to age and place to place. The stories in the Bible feature real people who lived long ago in cultures very different from ours. And knowing that history is enormously helpful for correctly interpreting and understanding the Bible. And today we have an abundance of resources, historical, literary, cultural studies that can help us. And with the internet, our knowledge base has just increased dramatically in the information age. Our ability to understand the setting of any part of scripture is now at an all-time high. So we see that King David's son, Solomon, has assumed the role of king of Israel. He's built this incredible temple for the Lord. He's brought in the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of the Lord's presence. And he's dedicated the temple before the assembled people of God. This is a climactic moment for the nation of Israel, as God has fulfilled his promise to David. And as Solomon stands before the people, he delivers a powerful speech, topped by this incredible prayer of dedication 
which is the longest prayer in the Bible. Imagine seeing Solomon kneeling before the Lord, spreading his hands to heaven, worshiping the Lord by recounting his covenant faithfulness, and he's doing it in front of the whole nation. Solomon prays the Lord would be attentive to his prayers and the prayers of his people that are offered in this place. He asks that the Lord ask his judge and forgiver of sins and would relent from divine judgment such as drought and famine when the people come before him in repentance. He asks the Lord to listen to the prayers of foreigners, not even the Jews, the Gentiles, who seek his face at this temple and the Lord would bless Israel in times of war. And finally, if the Lord should allow Israel to be defeated on account of their sin, he asked God to forgive and maintain their cause when they repent. And as he closes this long, majestic prayer, he appeals to the Lord to definitively act on behalf of his people, the priests, uh, the temple, and himself as God's anointed king. And in a dramatic visual response of affirmation to Solomon's prayer, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And it says all the people fall down on their faces. They're overwhelmed by the sight of this magnificent event. And then they start worshiping the Lord with singing and sacrifices and feasts that last another week. Following this, they return to their homes with joy in their hearts. The glory days of Israel are at an all-time high. But if you jump ahead, all that, most of that happens in chapter 6 and a little of chapter 7 of Second Chronicles. But if you jump to chapter 9, just a couple chapters ahead, we read in chapter 9, verse 22... Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And then we discover he's handing over the kingdom to a singularly unwise son. And Israel will split in two. And Solomon's son is left with only a sixth of the kingdom to hand on to his successor. And the next 350 years charted decline in what is now the kingdom of Judah. There's a few promising upturns under the reign of a handful of kings, but it all too quickly resumes its downward spiral. And before we know it, Judah is swallowed up by Babylon, which in turn falls to Persia. If you've been in Sunday school this year, as we've worked through Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and soon Nehemiah, you would already know all that. But even these pagan kingdoms are fulfilling the word of the Lord. His warnings are not idle threats, but equally his promises don't fail either. Israel will be down but not out. The Lord will remember his covenant even though his people won't. So there are several things we need to note in this passage. This response is specifically given to Solomon, the king who represents and leads God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. So that brings us to our first question, which is what prayer is God answering? Years pass from the time of the prayer. Solomon completes his palace. Then suddenly in the middle of the night, the Lord appears to Solomon uh, in private. We're not told how he appears. 
And what follows is God's personal response to Solomon's very public prayer years earlier at the temple. God is speaking to Solomon. <coughs> if you read an even fuller context of Second Chronicles, you can see that God is specifically responding to Solomon's temple prayer, the dedication prayer. And in this answer to prayer, God specifically refers to my people. He's talking about Israel, the nation that's called by my name. My people in the context of Second Chronicles does not represent America or Taiwan or Great Britain or any other nation on earth or even Christians as a whole. It can only mean the historic nation of Israel. Look at verse 12. What's this place? The place the Lord is referring to is none other than the temple itself, the house of sacrifice. <coughs> it's significant because the promise the Lord gives is specifically to this king and these people in this time and this place. It's not meant to be a general promise given to any other nation on the face of the earth. No other nation could claim to be God's people. No other nation had the temple where the living God dwells. <coughs> Besides, when Second Chronicles was written, where's the temple? It's in the old city of Jerusalem. It's not at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., not the White House, not the Supreme Court. It, very specifically, is the historic, built by Solomon, placed in Jerusalem temple. What land is being referenced in verse 14? It's the land of Israel, the original promised land that God gave to Israel. And America is not the new Jerusalem. So God's not giving a random promise here. He's specifically answering a specific prayer from a specific person at a specific time. So let's ask next, how is God answering this prayer? Notice that the Lord assumes his people will sin. Verse 13, he proclaims there will be times of drought and famine, where he sends locusts to devour the land and plagues and diseases to inflict the people or livestock, all in judgment for their sin. And yet this judgment will be short-lived if, God's people who are called by his name would humble themselves, pray, seek God's face, and repent. It is then that the Lord will do an amazing thing. Not only will he forgive their sin, but he'll restore the physical land that was decimated by these physical acts of judgment, drought, locusts, and pestilence. Healing the land clearly means the removal of these blights incurred by God's judgment on the disobedient nation of Israel. He will send the rain. He will remove the devastation of locusts. He's going to end the pestilence. In other words, heal their land means just that, replenishing the physical land to fruitfulness. He will restore the land so they have rain again, there'll be crops, there'll be a harvest that'll nourish, supply the needs of the people. This particular healing is physical and pertains to the land itself. It's important to note that even for Israel, it didn't mean something spiritual. It didn't mean revival. It didn't mean spiritual awakening. And it doesn't mean those things for America either. 
Much more could be gleaned from this scripture, but it should be enough to understand that this does not mean, cannot be construed to mean, nor should it be expected to mean America. The promises offered were for Israel under the Davidic covenant exclusively. They are for no other people at no other time and no other place. This verse of historical narrative only applies to the time, place, and context when and where God originally gave it. God has always and only had one chosen nation. And America ain't it. There is no valid interpretive principle that allows this verse to be applied to America. Actually, when I started this, I thought about just creating a slide and said, it's stupid to use this verse, please stop. And then just sit down. But everybody said, no, no, we want like the full 90 minutes. So the, uh, no, it won't be 90 minutes, like 87. No, it won't be. But it is misusing the scripture to pluck this verse out of context and wrongly apply it to America. To do so is to engage in a maneuver that we criticize other people to do. It's like the prosperity gospel folks who jerk a verse out of context and use it to justify another gospel that promises health, wealth, and prosperity. To do that is to wrongly handle the word of truth. It smacks of the name it and claim it heresy. And yet we see it done every year. We just had the day of prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14 is plastered on Pray for America posters, bulletins, websites. It's cited from pulpits. It's uttered in Sunday school rooms. It's tagged on the closing credits of the movie War Room, a Christian movie to emphasize the woeful problems evident in America. Memes of it were spread across social media, pleading its promises from God. But even if this was just a really mediocre interpretation of Scripture, it brings with it a major significant problem. You see, whose sins are we repenting of? Is the U.S. under judgment from God because of the sins of Christians? Or of the whole country made up predominantly of those outside the church? Of course, we know that Christians are sinners too. But do most of us believe that our country is under judgment because of the wickedness of the church? Perhaps. But I think for most of us, we believe our country is broken because of the wicked ways of others, principally the unsaved. The sins of the Christians in the U.S., while deplorable, can hardly account for all the suffering in our country. And if that's true, when we go to repent for our wicked ways, aren't we really just blaming our national problems on our neighbors? Stirring up in our hearts a deep animosity for the unsaved who have infiltrated and corrupted our republic. We encourage to believe that our country's troubles began when all those non-Christians showed up and the church didn't stop them. That's a problem. And I think it sort of gets us to look at our unsaved neighbors negatively. It's tough to share with gospel with people you don't like. Just ask Jonah. 
The exhortations of 2 Chronicles 7.14, to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God's face, to turn from our wicked ways, are echoed throughout the New Testament, to be sure. But the covenantal national promises of that verse are not. Because if they were, then why shouldn't you and I expect to receive the blessing attached to it of having our children continue to reign on the throne? Because it ain't about you or me. In the same way, it's not about America. If we insist on using this verse as a magical formula for revival, how come we never consider the verses that come right after our passage? Because I think they're actually much more applicable to America. Starting at verse 19, But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. At this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Go, America. How come that part of the text is never mentioned? Well, it really shouldn't be. Again, none of this applies to America. Ancient Israel never had this problem because for them, God's people and the nation of Israel were the same thing. But the church in America are not. So how can we apply this text? Because we ought to be able to apply every text of the Bible in some way. And that leads us to our next question. What is God requiring for this answer? And this is the part that I think can be applied but only if it's applied to believers, to those who claim to be the people of God today. In other words, the church. Not Americans in general, but Christians in particular. In fact, Dr. Walter Kaiser, who is an Old Testament scholar, says these requirements in verse 14 are the central message of the prophets. They were constantly preaching what God was asking of his people. They, and by implication us, are called to do four things. Humble themselves, pray, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways. So let's look at each of those quickly. First, humble themselves. I look this up because it sounds easy. But according to the Hebrew used here, it means to be humbled, be subdued, be brought down, be low, be under, be brought into subjection. God is the ultimate ruler, regardless if you're part of his family or not. He controls all. And those who claim to be his recognize that authority. Thus, to humble yourself is a declaration of submission to the almighty king. It's the complete opposite of the attitude expressed by the enemy who sought to exalt himself above the almighty. Those who are his and who bear the name of the father understand who God is and our relationship to him, namely that he's the king of the universe and we're humble servants. Second, to pray. Now, this term used to pray uh, in this passage is not describing your average everyday prayer over a meal. 
describes a much deeper aspect of prayer. This is at its core intercessory prayer. Focused, purposeful prayer on behalf of God's people and a call to the Almighty to be merciful. The session essentially does this once a month. We talk about you for about an hour. And then we pray for you for about an hour. I thought, if you don't know how to pray like that, some folks in the church have a prayer group that meets Sunday early evenings. Uh, join them for a while. Learn how to pray for God's people. Third, seek his face. To seek the face of the Almighty involves a desire to see the face of God. Now that's a dangerous desire if you read the rest of the Old Testament. But this type of seeking involves an active motion that's focused on God. When the creature, us, properly focused on God, the result is God's favor being poured out on the creature. Conversely, when the creature rejects God and turns their focus away from God, his favor is turned away from the creature. The seeking of God's face should be a hallmark of those who are called to be his bride. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller writes, To behold the glory of Jesus means that we begin to find Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. It means the kind of prayer where we're not simply coming to get his forgiveness, his help for our needs, his favor and blessing. Rather, the consideration of his character and his words and his work on our behalf becomes inherently satisfying, enjoyable, comforting, strengthening. The Puritan John Owen, I rarely quote Owen because there's not much that's harder to read than John Owen. He's brilliant, he's great, but it's like reading through mud. So, however, J.I. Packer's prologue to Owen is wonderful. But, Owen insists that it's crucial that Christians learn how to do this. He reasoned that if the beauty and glory of Christ don't capture our imagination and dominate our thoughts and fill our hearts with longing for Jesus, then something else will. We will be continually thinking on something else as our hope and joy. And whatever that is, that's going to frame our souls and transform us into its likeness. If we don't behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, then something else will rule our lives. And he says, and we will become slaves to whatever that is. Which perhaps begs the question of how do we seek God's face? And I had a big long section here and I chucked it. Because really it just comes down to the daily washing of our hearts and minds in the word of God through consistent, purposeful Bible study and through a consistent posture of prayer. I wish there was a shortcut, but there's not. It will take time. And last, we're told to turn from our wicked ways. This is the requirement that we tend to ignore. You know, we, we get to this part where oh, that's about Israel. You know. Because it depicts a specific method of movement. 
It's a return to something, namely the ways of the Father. It specifically involves obedience to the commands provided by the Father to his children in his word. If we're not being obedient to the Father's commands, then we're not turning from our wicked ways. We're walking in our wicked ways. This most closely correlates to the biblical command for repentance. The idea of turning away from sin and turning to Christ. So those are the four things, and I think those things do, can be applied to us as sort of general principles, if not a specific command. You know, I read recently about a man who was in China on business. In the process, he found something that he didn't even know existed in China, a Christian bookstore. As far as he knew, it was the only one in the city. He was in one of China's major cities. There's a bunch of them. He said it was hard to find it stuffed into a very small space on the fourth floor of this nondescript, plain-looking building, but it's a Christian bookstore in China. And so he went in, and in addition to the books, they had a small selection of Christian bookmarks and refrigerator magnets with verses and inspirational thoughts. I didn't have enough space to have all the other junk that most of our bookstores have. And of course, it's all in Chinese. So you have to be able to read Chinese to know what it all says. He said there was one magnet that he couldn't get out of his head. Because here in the midst of this great city, in this great land, where Christians have paid such a heavy price to follow Jesus, was a magnet that in Chinese said, pray for America. He said he just stood in front of it and he was totally humbled. Because most American Christians think of China as a place that we need to pray for. And it is. But in China, apparently, they think they need to pray for us. And they do. Because of the long history of persecution, their faith is powerful and ours is often powerless. What, Chinese, what for Chinese believers is a passion for Jesus is for too many of us merely a profession. We have so much, yet in terms of spiritual power and passion, we seem to have so little. And they have so little, and yet in many ways they have so much. I'm glad and I'm humbled that they feel the need to pray for us. Our world is a fallen world, and it doesn't appear to be getting any better, but it will pass away one day. Because this world is not our home. And one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But until that time, we are to walk faithfully, proclaim the gospel, pray for our country and its leaders, rejoice in the freedoms we still enjoy. But we must not mistake the country we live in now for the kingdom of God. Even if we think it's the greatest country on earth and a country still worth uh, living and dying for. It is a true biblical principle that when people repent, times of refreshing and blessing come. But we don't go to Second Chronicles for that. You can go to Acts 3, among other places. It says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So in this sense, we should pray for repentance and revival to take hold in our land so that God's forgiveness and grace and healing would rain down on us. 
but we're not getting that from 2 Chronicles 7.14. A verse that invokes God's promise and guarantees that to happen is a misuse of God's word. There is no doubt God is pleased when we pray. He's pleased when we intercede for others, for our leaders, and for our country. God desires to see people humble themselves and repent so they may be saved through faith in Christ and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then they'll join the people of God who are called by his name. And you let me say, I hope you don't wait for the National Day of Prayer to pray for America. Because we need prayer way more than that. So pray for America. Pray for our leaders. Pray for just laws. Pray for their just application. And pray for our people. And do it more than once a year. But don't use this verse wrongly. Expecting blessings forthcoming for America. Because that verse is not about America. As much as I love America. As much as I'm blessed by the freedoms that still remain. And though I pray for it. America is not my source of hope or strength or salvation. Our end goal is not a Christian of America of a made-up past or a hope for a future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ, made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We are in Christ the heirs of that kingdom. The worst thing that can happen to us is not our cultural marginalization or social setbacks. The worst thing that can happen to us is crucifixion under the curse of God, and we've already been there. The best thing that can happen to us has also already happened. We've been raised with Christ and are seated with him at the right hand of God. That should free us to speak, not because we're a majority, moral or otherwise, but because we're the embassy of the future speaking to consciences that were made to long for good news. Let's quick go back and look at something I skipped over in Second Chronicles, verses 17 and 18. It says, As for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father. You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. God is speaking about his covenant established with Solomon's father, King David. The language reaffirms God's commitment to Israel based on their obedience to his commands and reaffirms God's commitment to the perpetuation of a royal throne for the son of David. If you're not aware of it, that covenant's been replaced. Read Hebrews. Something more wonderful has happened. There's a new covenant because a greater David has arrived. You can open the New Testament, start the first book, first chapter, first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see Jesus called the son of David 14 times, and that's just in Matthew. Now to let you in on a little secret. Second Chronicles was not written as current events. It wasn't written as it happened. This is actually a historical count. This book, this chapter, this verse is a word written to a specific people, the people of God coming home from exile after all those warnings of Solomon had come true. This was written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Historically, First and Second Chronicles is credited to Ezra himself. These people are coming home from a time when they were dominated and enslaved by a foreign power at a time when they needed to be reminded of who they are, who God was, what he had promised to do. This passage is given to them to point them back to Solomon's reign, reminding them of what Solomon did when he built the temple, the house of the Lord, the place of the gathering for the worship of God. And they came back and they're like, oh, the good old days. It seems as though the house of David is gone. And even once they, they built a second temple, it wasn't a good temple. It wasn't a real temple. It's not as big or great as Solomon's temple. And the questions that God's people are asking on the return from exiles, where's God? What's our future as the people of God? And God says to them, if my people who are called by my name pointing them back to the covenant he made with their father Abraham. At a specific point in their history, God had told Abraham, saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what my people means. God's reminding of people who'd been exiled and enslaved and defeated that a rebuilt temple or a displaced nation can't change who they are. They're God's people and they would see the future that God has for them. If we don't understand the question of who we are, first and foremost, as the people of God, then we're going to miss this. If we take this text and bypass the people of God, apply it to America in general, as though our citizenship as Americans or Australians or Albanians or any other country begins with A, is the foundation of the covenant God's made with us, the problem is not just that we're misusing and misinterpreting the text. The bigger problem is that we're going to miss Jesus. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you should be a student of his word. He tells us, John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then you'll more fully understand Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I can't wait. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Remember when the gospel was given to us in its fullness, it came into a world that was just as religiously pluralistic, uh, morally depraved, politically antagonistic as ours is. But the gospel exploded across the planet, despite the ungodly culture it encountered. That gospel, as the Apostle Paul reminds us when he says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Second Chronicles 7.14, as much as we want it to be, is not a power verse promising anything to America. It's not a formula for spiritual awakening. But the gospel is. And America needs the power of the gospel, regardless of what tone our government or society assumes. Likewise, all the souls in our churches, our neighborhoods, our schools, and walking the halls of our government at every level need that truth too. Let us pray for another reformation in the church, for an awakening to the authentic promises of Scripture, renewed obedience to the authority of his word. Let's pray with greater fervency and greater frequency. 
Let us preach the gospel to everyone, starting with ourselves. But for all those people that we know who don't know Jesus, that their citizenship may be eternally changed. For those who need to know the truth that will make them free. There's no miracle verses or ancient biblical formulas that will change this country or any other country. But there is a power that will do exactly that. Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. That's what we should be praying for. Pray for that to take hold in our land. And pray for that right now. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Father, we are proud people who don't know how to humble ourselves. Help us to humble ourselves by looking at your greatness and goodness and seeing how small we really are. We are people who pray powerless prayers for our own wants and needs. Help us to pray powerful prayers for the gospel to take hold in our country, in our county, in our neighbors, in our friends, in our church. We are people who have no idea how to seek your face. Help us to seek your face by immersing us in your word. Teach us what it means to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we are people who are loath to turn from our wicked ways because we love wickedness. Help us to be repentant people who sorrow over our sin and learn how to turn to you and beg for mercy, learning to walk with you all over again, step by step, day by day. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Grant us correctable hearts and quick repentance and the grace of the gospel. For we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.